We're going to just carry on with our worship this morning, just get straight to it. If you've got a Bible, if you haven't got a Bible, just pop your hand up and Johnny will, will get one of our church Bibles to you. If you've got a Bible and it's one of our ESV Bibles, you could turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. We're still there, which is page 785. As you're there, also turn to Isaiah 53 and just put a, put a finger or a pen or something in Isaiah 53, which is page 614. We're going to end up there later on as we celebrate this meal, this communion meal later on. But we've got to do some work before we get there. We're still in this book of Habakkuk. And if we remember, Habakkuk is an Old Testament prophet. This is a few thousand years ago, hundreds of years before Jesus comes and lives amongst us. And we, we've learned so far, we've spent a few weeks already just getting a bit of context, getting a bit of understanding of, of what's going on in Habakkuk's day. And Habakkuk is a man who has seen both the highs and the lows of God's people. So under King Josiah, the boy king, he's seeing God's people, Judah, experience revival like the best of times where everyone was coming to God and, and confession of their sin and growing in their love for him and worshipping him and putting away their idols. And then when King Josiah died, we see this reintroduction of bad kings. And at the time of writing, Habakkuk is writing with uh, King Jehoiakim on the throne. And he is the exact opposite of King Josiah. King Josiah loved God, honoured God, led God's people towards God. But King Jehoiakim did the opposite. He loved idols. He loved uh, just the, the things that would, would elevate him and, and bring him glory. And he ultimately led God's people towards destruction. Habakkuk looks out, he's God's man on the ground. He's a generally good guy. And God speaks through Habakkuk. And, and Habakkuk comes and makes a complaint to God. And he says, God, God, can you not see what's going on? Can you not see the evil and the injustice that, that's going on? Can, are you just going to sit and not do anything? God, come on, do something. We've seen you do it before. We've seen you restore God's people. We've seen you revive our hearts and draw us back towards righteousness. Do it again. And God answers Habakkuk, and we saw last week, it is the answer to the prayer that Habakkuk did not want to hear. God says, I'm not, I'm not apathetic to this. I haven't got my eyes closed to evil and injustice. I see what's going on, Habakkuk, and I will not remain silent. I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they're called in, in the ESV. I'm going to raise up this, this nation to come and bring judgment. I am going to raise them. And they will administer judgment on, on my behalf. That is not the answer that Habakkuk wanted. Habakkuk wanted God's people to, yeah, to, to, to deal with the evil and injustice and sin, but to be restored again. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment like you have never seen before. Habakkuk again replies to God, and we pick it up in uh, chapter 1, verse 12. <laughs> Habakkuk says to God, are you not from everlasting? O oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O oh Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. 
He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk responds again to God. And this is one of those passages that really helps us believe that that this is the word of God. Habakkuk points a finger at God. Now, if you and I were writing this and it was, it was our words, we wouldn't leave bits like this in the Bible, would we? We'd, we'd kind of present God as this just perfect uh, God who he is and, and everyone just falling in line and doing what he says. But that isn't what we see with Habakkuk. We see him turn around and point a finger in God and say, God, what are you doing? Are you just going to sit there idly and not, and not do? You're really going to raise up the Babylonians and use them? This is an interesting passage for us this morning. It has light in it we're going to see that but it also has elements of shade like we like to look at the bible and we like to see characters in the bible and maybe people like david or noah and we look at these people and we think oh yeah they're good people we can see god working through good people but actually every one of them has some element of shade and struggle in their life we're going to see that in habakkuk we're going to see maybe how he errs into areas where he shouldn't do but we're also going to see The Holy Spirit beautifully draws Habakkuk to a place of confession. A a place where he sees God and actually is drawn deeper into God. Let's just listen again to what he said. Habakkuk comes with this complaint in verse 12. He says to God, God, we won't die. We're we're surely not as bad as the Babylonians. Yes, we are bad. Yes, we have sinned. And and if you remember a few weeks back, Judah were were sinful. They were were fraternizing with idols. They were engaging in sexual immorality. They were doing horrific things. But still Habakkuk says, we're not as bad as them. We're not as bad as the Babylonians, God. And then in verse 13, he brings his accusation. He says, God, you're going to use the unrighteous to punish the unrighteous. I get that. But he says, the unrighteous will still win. Babylon are going to win here. That just doesn't make sense, God. Are you going to sit there idly and let them win? Verse 14, he says, you can do something about it. You created us. You're the one who made us, so you are the one who can do something about this. Don't just sit quietly and let them come and take over us. And in verse 16, he goes on to describe the brutality of Babylon. He talks about this hook that would be put through a fish. And he's talking figuratively, but also literally. So if you were caught and enslaved by the Babylonian Empire, they would often literally drive a hook through your bottom lip and chain you to the slave in front of you. And they would walk you in a line and your lip would be pulled as you were dragged along. It was barbaric. God, are you going to let them do that to us? He talks about this picture of a dragnet. So, so if you imagine a, a ship pulling behind a net and gathering up all of these fish, he says that's what, what the Babylonians are going to do to us. And actually you can look at ancient paintings and, and it shows a, a picture of the Babylonian gods with this net in the sea with, with all of their enemies being gathered up in this net. They were a barbaric nation. And Habakkuk, Habakkuk says, surely not God, surely, surely not them. 
And then in verse 16, it says it gets even worse. They, they twist their evil deeds to make them look like good deeds. They had a, a propaganda machine where, where their evil just looked like good. And, and actually, it, it caused the Babylonian people to worship themselves. And then in verse 17, he says, surely you're not going to keep letting them get away with this. Keeping on emptying out their net and mercilessly killing the nations forever. He has this conversation with God and then he withdraws in verse one of chapter two. And it's almost like he just crosses his arms like this and and says, all right, I'm going to sit and wait and see what you're going to do, God. I'm going to go to my watchtower. You've heard my complaint. Now I want to hear what you're going to say about it. Like a spoiled little kid who's kind of crossing his arms and just like, all right, what are you going to do? That's the picture that we get. Let's deal with the shade first. There is light and there is shade in this passage Let's look at the shade first. Habakkuk is audacious. There are parts of his complaint that are arrogant. So some of the commentators who write about this passage say there is no other passage in the Bible where you see someone with, with the, the, the amount of disrespect and, and no courtesy that Habakkuk shows to God here. They say there is nothing in the Bible like it. Someone who says that they are God's people and then speaks to God in, in such a way that there's nothing like it. I think what we find is, there you go, you can hear them. Uh, what we find is, is Habakkuk has kind of strayed into a place almost that he, he should not be. And he probably doesn't want to be. Pointing his human finger at a sovereign God. Questioning the purposes of the almighty God. And we can kind of watch in the sidelines and think, come on Habakkuk. Come on, get back in line. We can kind of tutter him and maybe point our finger at him. But the reality is every time God shows us the way to go and we choose another way, we do the same. We say to God, yeah, I hear you, God. I hear what you're saying. I read what you're saying, but you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. This way is better. And we do that all of the time. What I want us to do this morning, folks, and my prayer for us this morning is that we'd move from being maybe at times people with arrogant heads to people with worshipful hearts. That we would stop being people who at times think that we know better than God, the almighty God, pointing our fingers at him and actually come to a place where we see him for who he is and worship him. And it starts, folks, with knowing where we stand before God. He's, he's a man. Habakkuk is just a man made of flesh and bones and he's pointing his thing, finger. I mean, haven't we talked about this over the last few weeks? How great and awesome God is. Folks, we need to know where we stand as human beings before an almighty God. And you see glimpses of it through the Old Testament. David talks about it a lot. In Psalm 39, verse 5, he says this, Behold, God, you have made my days as a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Selah is this Hebrew word of just stopping and pausing and reflecting. Surely all mankind stands before God as just a breath. Just let that sink in, David says. Psalm 103, verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. If you walk through Sefton Park at the moment, we see everything coming into blossom. But, but nine months down the line, what do we see? They're gone. In fact, you see it with the blossoms at the moment, isn't it? A picture of just beautiful blossom. But then the wind comes, shakes it all off the tree, and it'll be gone next week. David says, that's what we are like before God. Here for a moment and then gone. One of my favorites, Job 38. Job is a man of God and and he has a testing time. 
And he comes and he just brings this complaint to God a little bit like Habakkuk. And God kind of just pushes Job a little bit more than maybe he does other people. He brings this complaint to God and it's almost like, God, really? Do you know what you're doing here? And God replies to him. Four chapters of God's heavy hand on Job. He says to Job, Job, where were you when I made the foundations of the world? Job, did you give the horse its strength? Job, did you put the mane on the back of the horse? Job, did you tell the hawk to fly south when it's winter? Job, did you put the constellations in the the skies? Did you put the waters in the sea? And chapter 40, two chapters in, Job kind of comes to God and he's like, all right, maybe you're right, I'm sorry. And and God's like, no, I haven't finished. Dress for action. And two more chapters, he goes after Job and he's like, Job, did you do any of this? Compared to me, you're just like a breath. You are finite, you are limited, you are created. And that might sound brutal, like a God really just going to town on someone like that and and making it so clear how small we are. But I need to tell us one of the most liberating and comforting things that we can hear this morning is that we are not God. We are not God. And that is good news. What is one of the most fastest genres of books at the moment? Self-help. You walk into Waterstones and they have got shells full of self help books and the culture is kind of pulling us into this mantra just believe in yourself believe in yourself and it will all be okay that's not right i was looking um, at some new running trainers i've had the same pair of trainers for 17 years which either means i don't run a lot or my feet are well my feet are walked to be honest you don't want to have a look at what's beneath these shoes they're pretty horrendous but I do need a new pair of shoes. And you know the way that, that your phone picks up on what you're talking about and even what you're thinking, I think, sometimes? It started to show me adverts for Nike trainers. Nike have kind of clocked onto it. They know I need a new pair of shoes. And they're, they're kind of filling my social media with adverts. And they start throwing up these, these little strap lines to grab me in. Now, bear in mind, I just run around Sefton Park. That's all I do. I'm, a, I'm not particularly good at running, but this is what they're telling me. Neil, be legendary. I'm running around Sefton Park I have no ambitions to be a legend as I'm running around Sefton Park here's another one run the day don't let it run you okay make yourself unstoppable right willpower knows no obstacles find your greatness I'm running that's all I'm doing I'm just running a few laps here's another one the only one who can tell you you can't is you and you don't have to listen folks we are not legends (laughs) and we will never be legends here in a few years time or maybe in a few generations time we might think that we're people now but people will maybe say neil neil who never heard of him alan who yeah he made good furniture but no bit of a distant memory we may think that we're great now, but just give it a few generations and we'll be forgotten. Like the blossom on the trees, just blown away. We need to know where we stand before God. We need to know that we are finite and he is great. Because when we do, actually, that is where we find comfort and security. And we realize that God is great and we are not. We actually come to realize we can't fix ourselves. Every single one of us, let's not lie, we're broken. We're struggling. 
It feels like a battle just to wake up some mornings. And we, we lie to ourselves when we think, I can fix this. I'm going to be a legend at this. We're not. And actually to come to realize that God is the only one who can do that is a place of liberty, is a place of freedom, is the place of ultimate security that every single one of us need. When we realize that God is great and we are not, we realize that only he can provide us what we need to truly live and to flourish in this life and the next. When we see that God is great and we are not, we realize that we can't explain evil and suffering, but he can We can't fix the brokenness around us, but he can. His ways are higher than ours. And that is good news for us. To see our smallness in the light of his greatness is a place of comfort. And that might sound counterintuitive, but it's true. It sounds counterintuitive, maybe countercultural, because most of the time when, when normal people find themselves in the presence of something greater, actually we, we feel intimidated. We feel a sense of fear. Like you see that in creation. Has anyone ever been to um, like the top of the Empire State or just a, a big or Sky Garden or somewhere like that in London? A really tall building. And you stand at the edge and you feel it, don't you? Like you just feel your stomach going a little bit and you, you feel a little bit nauseous and you feel intimidated at the size of it. Has anyone ever been caught in like a, a, a mega thunderstorm or just something where you see the greatness and the power of, of creation and you just feel so small and you feel intimidated by it? Like, like naturally, that's how we feel. So there's this part in our brain. This is where I'm, Ella's here. So I'm, I'm going to, I always try and get away with it. Ella's a doctor and... When she's not here, I can get away with these. But there's a part in our brain called the amygdala. And it's our, our kind of center for, for fear. So when we get to the edge of the cliff or we get to the edge of the Empire State Building or we're in this, this thunderstorm, the amygdala kicks in and it makes us feel fear. It actually stops us from doing stupid things like taking that foot off the, the building or walking into the storm. It's, it's there to help us. Now, there's some strange people in the world and honestly, they've done um, research where their amygdala doesn't work and so they, they free climb up, up stupidly big mountains and they just do crazy stuff that, that we would never do because our amygdala's function properly but actually we're wired in a way almost to feel intimidated when we're faced with with big things like that we feel it in creation but we also feel it with people anyone ever been pulled over by the police come on now yeah well there's a few more slowly slowly a few years we got pulled over and we hadn't done anything wrong it was a case of mistaken identity which um yeah, let's, let's, we'll leave that there. Um, on Park Road, we were driving down and the police, it was a big van, the police, uh, blues and twos, uh, told us to pull over and they came out in the car. Now, it didn't help that at this point we'd been telling Micah if he didn't finish his dinner, the police would come and knock around. <laughs> so the blues and twos are going, Micah sees them in the back. He sees, honestly, they all surrounded the car. They thought we were uh, someone totally different. Micah's panicking in the back. Elizabeth and I are panicking. We didn't know what was going on and we felt intimidated. We feel intimidated, folks, and we feel a sense of, of fear sometimes when we're around people who have a sense of greatness and authority. But I want to tell us, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not the case with God. We don't need to fear him. And this is where we get to the light in the passage. Because in between the lines of Habakkuk's arrogance and him just not having a right sense of who he is in light of the greatness of God, we see that God is doing something wonderful in the midst of his frustration. It's fascinating. As he complains, by the help of the Spirit, he's actually pressing deeper into God. As he complains, you might have picked up on it as we read through. He actually confesses the greatness of God. 
And ultimately, that is going to lead him to a place of security. Scattered amongst Habakkuk's complaint, he gives these different characteristics of who God is. Just look down at the passage again in verse 12. He, he says, are you not from everlasting? Now it's a question, but it's a question based on what he knows to be true about God. God, you're eternal. You're uncreated. You're outside of time. You see everything that's going on. Nothing happens that, that God does not see coming. Nothing is a surprise to him. And then we see him repeat, Lord, this is God's covenant name. We've talked about this already. God's, God's name, which just encapsulates the, the truth that he is self-existent. He is self-sustaining. He doesn't need anything. And then he goes on to say, God, you're holy. He knows that, that in God and the character of God and who he is, there is no darkness at all. There is no sin. And so when we know that, God, guys, know the holiness of God is such a help. Because when we see that God is holy and that in him there is no sin, there is no darkness, it means that when we see suffering and evil and, and we feel the weight of the world and the brokenness around us, we can ask ourselves this question, would, would, would the God that we love really do this to harm us? Would he really do this because he is evil and because he is wicked? Well, no, because he's holy. He can't. He hates sin. He says that God is almighty. He talks about Babylon being ordained as a judgment and a correction for Judah. He sees that God is in control. He says this, God is a rock. I love this one. God is this place of security and strength. He talks about the faithfulness of God. He says this, we shall not die, which, which might sound a little bit like, like Habakkuk's being arrogant in that moment, but actually he isn't. What he's doing is saying, God, your people cannot die. Why? Because he covenanted with Abraham that that would not be the case. Hundreds of years before he came to Abraham in the desert and he gave Abraham a promise that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. And then he built on that promise with King David and through King David, he said, through you, through your line, I'm going to raise up the Messiah. There will be one who sits on an eternal throne. And Habakkuk knows that to be true. And so he says to God boldly, we will not die. We can't because you are a faithful God and a God who never breaks his promises. Everything that he has said will come to pass. And so Judah will never be exterminated. In the depth of his struggle, here's what Habakkuk does, whether he realizes it or not, he confesses who God is. And as he does, he's going to drive himself deeper and deeper into God. The irony of Habakkuk's complaint against God is that it actually reveals the solid ground that he's actually standing on. And so here's the takeaway for us. In our struggle, in the pain of life, in the difficulty of life, can encourage us to reject taking a position of arrogance, which often looks like self-reliance or self-help or whatever you want to call it, just assuming that we are little gods thinking that we can fix ourselves, reject that. Instead, take the position of a worshipful heart, knowing that God is God and we are not. Remind yourself of who he is. Here's just a quick point of application. If you are in the midst of struggle now and you're feeling just the, the weight of sin and, and maybe guilt or shame, or you're just struggling with things that are going on around you, take what I'd like to call a strategy of indirect approach. So if you read the history books and you look um, at how the Second World War was won, 
uh, you'll see that this is a military term, the strategy of indirect approach. So how did the Allies beat Germany? They didn't go to Germany. They actually went to Africa. That's where they started their campaign. They actually went further back and started dealing with the problem further back. They didn't go to the immediate problem and, and, and kind of go and send all of their forces into Germany. They, they, they started much further back. And I'd encourage us to do the same. Whatever struggle that we are facing, remind ourselves of the truth of who God is. Remind yourself of the truth of who God is, the things that are beyond doubt. Write them down. Say, God is holy. God is in control. God is almighty. God is good. God is faithful. Write those things down and say, this is the solid ground that I'm standing on. And then apply those principles to the problem. Put your problem in context based on what you know to be true about God. And if you're still in doubt, if you're still struggling, like Habakkuk seemed to be, then commit your problem to prayer. Leave it with God. Go to your watchtower like Habakkuk does and watch and wait. This watchtower, like it doesn't really make much, uh, bring a reference to us, but it was a place that, that God's man or woman would go and they would look out across the land. It wasn't a place where they would fight. They would just look out. It's in stark contrast to those who rely on their own strength and wisdom. It is a place of just committing it to God and waiting and watching trusting on the solid ground that we stand on all that we know to be true about God so folks what is it what is it in our lives that we are trying to fix in our own strength I want just to take some time to pray I've got one more point for us but I just want us to stop for a minute and just take some time to pray let's just bow our heads for a few minutes come to God in prayer where is it that we need to admit that we're playing God and just step aside and let God be God? Where is it that we need to repent of arrogant heads and just a futile self-belief that ultimately will only lead us to despair? What are the truths of God that we need to remind ourselves of this morning? That he is eternal, that he is holy, that he is faithful, that he is our rock. What do we need to commit to God in prayer and just let go and just watch and wait? If we're struggling to be those people who, who don't have arrogant heads but have worshipful hearts, then maybe this is a time that we just need to put to death our own pride, our arrogance, and just ask God for a, a vision of his greatness. So Father, help us to see you Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to trust that you are who you say you are. And as we confess that you are all these things, bring us to a place of comfort. Bring us to a place of security. Help us to put to death the things that we are holding on to that will ultimately waste away and help us to come to you the eternal one faithful one god we need your strength so help us we pray in jesus name amen
We're going to share this meal in a minute. But before we do, I've just got one last point that I want to draw us towards. As we've been working through this first chapter, there's just some words that have, have come up that really will help us land this last kind of point that helps us come to God with our struggle and hold on to him. Habakkuk looks out across Judah and in chapter one, we see him crying out violence. He sees violence being multiplied amongst God's people. Chapter one, verse three, he sees that there is iniquity across the land. Verse four, he sees that the wicked are surrounding the righteous. In our passage this morning, in verse 12, he he sees that the Babylonians are going to be raised up as a judgment against God's people. Verse 13, he comes with this complaint against God. God, are you going to remain silent as the wicked swallow up around us? Are you going to remain silent as the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Folks, turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, written in similar sorts of time that Habakkuk is writing, but it is a prophetic passage looking towards the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, towards his death and his resurrection. Now listen to the words that Isaiah says and see if you can see any link between the passage that we just read. Starting in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. As Habakkuk looked out, he saw the iniquity of God's people. Isaiah says there is coming a time where all of our iniquity, our wrongdoing will be laid on Jesus. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Remember Habakkuk's complaint to God? God, are you going to remain silent? Are you going to remain silent as sin increases? And Isaiah looks towards a time when God will remain silent. As wicked men surround him on the cross. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears in silence. So he opened on his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. We hear that of oppression and judgment coming to Judah through Babylon. And Isaiah looks forward to a time when that oppression that is due to every single one of us will not be laid on us, but laid on Jesus. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, ultimately God's people, Judah, will be exiled. They will be taken away. They will be cut off. And Isaiah looks towards a time when God himself Jesus Christ, as he takes on the sin of the world, Jesus the man will be separated from God, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The wicked and the violent that Habakkuk sees as he looks out across Judah. And Jesus is thrown in with them. All of our violence that we commit through our sin, all of our injustice that we commit through our offenses against God, all of the wickedness that we commit day 
after day after day, Isaiah says, there is a time coming and Jesus is going he's gonna to take it all for you. He's going to bear the weight of the punishment for your violence and for your wickedness. And he came. Jesus came, put on human flesh, lived amongst us, died for us, took on our judgment, our oppression, died in our place for our iniquity. And yet he was the one who Habakkuk talked about, the man more righteous. See, Habakkuk looks out across Judah and says, we're not as bad as Babylon. But there was one who would come who would be completely perfect. The only one who could ever say that. Jesus comes, lives the perfect life, dies the cruel death for us. And as we take this meal, it serves as a vivid reminder of the man more righteous than any of us who came and his body was broken and his blood was shed and he took on the curse, the penalty that was due to us for our judgment. He suffered and died and then three days later he rose again. And so that we can now have hope as we stand on the solid rock of who God is. We can have hope that, that we are not on our own in our struggle. He has given us his Holy Spirit He's given us something to look forward to, a future eternity with him. And so as we take this meal, Ryan's going to bring out the bread, the juice and the wine. If you're a Christian this morning, I'd encourage you to take it. To take the bread and the wine. Elizabeth and Matty are just going to play and sing a song for us. And as you do, I'd encourage you just to remember who God is. Maybe just take a moment to feel your smallness in light of the greatness of God. But then also look towards the picture of the cross where we see the greatness of God put on display. The place where we should have stood, but Jesus stood in our place. Give thanks for what we see and what we know to be true in the cross and the resurrection. Give thanks that we have life eternal. Just take some time to listen to the words of the song. Take your time and take in this meal. And then when we're done, the guys will lead us And we'll stand and uh, we'll close out with a couple of songs. But let me just give thanks for this meal. And when you're ready, when the bread, the wine, the juice comes to you, just in your own time, just take the bread and take the cup.